Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. It seems we're in a hurry-up-and-wait mode here in Washington, where we're facing critical deadlines and massive policy challenges, but not much is actually happening. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss the latest in Washington with AAF's Gordon Gray. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, how have you been the last couple of weeks? Just peachy, as you said. Um, there's been an awful lot going on, but without very much in the way of substantive movement. Though, interesting, literally in the last several minutes, the Senate has made progress on, on a debt limit. Um, adjustment. The Senate actually just went into recess because Leader McConnell offered some room for maneuvering to get over this. Uh, all right. So let's unpack all this and some other stuff. I would like to talk to you about, you know, Washington's big policy fights, the debt limit and the reconciliation and infrastructure bills, as well as your prediction for Friday's monthly jobs numbers. Let's start with most urgent, as you just uh, mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of movement happening on the debt limit. Secretary Yellen said Treasury has until around October 18th to get this done, to get a debt limit increase passed. But both sides have dug in up until, you know, up until today. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it's reckless for Senate Republicans to oppose the debt ceiling increase. Basically, they've spent like uh, drunken sailors, she said. Uh, on the other side, Republicans have said if Democrats are going to go it alone on the massive reconciliation bill, they can go alone on raising the debt limit. First, what do you make of all this finger pointing back and forth? Are these some valid concerns? So there, each one of the arguments that you'll hear has elements of truth to it, uh, but they are couched in each side claiming the moral high ground, and that is just absurd. Neither political party really can operate from the moral high ground here. Um, it is it is correct that the debt limit uh, increase simply allows the federal government to pay the bills coming due. It is also correct, however, that the party that controls the White House and both chambers of Congress want to substantially alter the nation's uh, fiscal outlook which is all well and good. That's the consequence of winning elections. Uh, but then to pretend like they have uh, their hands on all the levers of, of power in Washington and D.C., except the debt limit is uh, equally facile. So right now, or where we have been, we'll see what happens with the latest offer from uh, Senator McConnell. But where we've been is, is somewhat absurd. Uh, neither party had a policy concession to negotiate. Simp quite, quite simply, Republicans didn't have the votes to increase the debt limit because they don't view it as their responsibility. And traditionally, it's been the majority party's obligation to find the votes themselves. And what has gone disappointingly unreported, um, in fact, reporters on the Hill really only really started today, is the Democrats didn't have the votes to do it either. And when you don't have the votes to do something, you negotiate and compromise. And neither, uh, neither party, in particular the majority, was willing to do that. And that was what was so scary for a lot of observers, is that there was no nothing to negotiate over. It was all a matter of sort of process. There was nothing to concede and nothing really to gain and nothing to trade. And so it just looked like both parties were just talking themselves into a crisis. But 
it's it's very possible that uh, some progress is, is being made as we speak. So how does this end? You just mentioned that, you know, progress is being made between the two parties. Um, the Senate parliamentarian also has ruled that Democrats can use the so-called reconciliation process to pass the right. increase uh, to the debt limit. Will they be able to get this, able to use this process, um, maybe find a different agreement to yeah. get this done in time? That's the that's the hope, and that's certainly the, the ambition of uh, Senator McConnell's offer, which was essentially give them time to uh, pursue a debt limit through uh, reconciliation. And that uh, we'll, we'll see if, if that has a, uh, a willing audience in the in the you know among Senate Democrats. My, my sense is that this is the opportunity to move forward. It's we'll see. Uh, in fact, Democrats are, are meeting to discuss it right now. So heady times. Yeah, seems like it's all going to be changing by the minute. I'm sure you'll have a lot more to say in writing, at least about the debt ceiling. In this Got a piece out today? Yeah, what's that? Got a piece out today? On- I did see that before what? we jumped on here, and uh, uh, we'll have to make sure everyone go and read that piece. But basically in there, you outlined what would happen if they yeah. don't get the debt increase passed, right? Yeah. So there's sort of the top line story that that you get when, when you think about what happens when Treasury can't borrow anymore. Fundamentally, it means that the, that the government can't pay its bills. Uh, it doesn't quite mean that we would necessarily default on Treasury bills. The Federal Reserve has systems in place to pay those bills, but there's some risks there too. And so what I, I, I do is just dive into um, some materials that were released by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department about some of these conversations that happened uh, about 10 years ago, the last time uh, Congress and the executive branch seriously flirted with a debt limit breach. There was um, a lot of discussions about contingencies going on then. And so I, I reviewed those to examine what the practical reality of hitting the debt limit is. And, and quite frankly, you run a lot of risks and you run risks that you would not want the United States to run. And so, frankly, the conclusion of the piece after I walked through those contingencies is don't do this. <laughs> Yeah, seems like a good idea and something we don't really want to see the the outcome of passing that deadline. But let's turn away from Congress for a moment and talk yes, about please. the September jobs report. Uh, mm-hmm. Gordon's guesstimate will be coming out on Thursday. And of course, you'll get the U6 on Friday. What are we going to learn about the economic recovery on Friday? What do you expect to see? So I do expect to see um, a, a strong jobs number, you know, some something north of half a million you know, some of the, the data that we've seen from last month, particularly ADP, has been strong. The rationale for people, or the most con- obvious and conspicuous rationales for people not uh, entering the, the labor labor market, um, such as UI, uh, child care, things like that, those have, have uh, receded from, from the outlook. Uh, mainly just by the passage of time, and a lot of those policies have expired. And also, there's been some research looking at the interaction of childcare and going back to work, at least in this COVID economy. And so, I expect that uh, that that we'll see a strong jobs report. Uh, like I said, somewhere north of of half a million. So it'd be a it'd be a good report. That said, there's some weird stuff still going on in the in the labor market. Yeah. Um, Labor force participation rate is substantially below what, what it used to be before before COVID. It's you know we've seen millions of workers leave the labor force uh, since since the COVID 
pandemic kicked in. But we've also got historic job openings. And yet we still have millions of, of, of workers uh, staying on the sidelines. And, and the argument that they're you know, getting paid more to stay at home because UI just isn't really the case anymore. And so why, why, what's going on? What's going on there? And we also still have um, historically high levels of quits. So people are quitting their jobs, which is a story I would not have imagined to be reading now after what has been a pretty tough year for a lot of households. You know, you know, a lot of people lost, lost their jobs. And, and clearly public policy has supported households. The assistance in the form of direct payments, but also additional public policy supports have kept household balance sheets substantially whole. And, and in fact, in many cases, people ended up coming out with a lot more savings than they otherwise would have. And so that's given possibly people sort of the freedom to find new job opportunities. And there's there's this big resorting going on in the, in the labor market. But the historic numbers of job openings, the historic number of quits, people quitting their job, is something I would not have expected, and I think I'm probably in good company there. But it's 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 out there. So there's there's more than just sort of the policy uh, story going on right now. So that historic number of quits. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize this was happening. So yeah. is this because people don't want to go back to work with the pandemic still? You know, we're still in this pandemic economy, um, and it's still out there. There's still a public health crisis, obviously. And is it economy wide, or is it, or is it specific sectors that is this happening? Well, to be sure that what what you are finding is that certain industries were heavily and hard hit by the pandemic, in particular leisure and hospitality. So you you could imagine, sort of in a in a simple sort of textbook world, that all right, now all of a sudden those those jobs are are newly available again. People would want to go back to them, and that's just not happening. And so I suspect. It's very it, all of the reasons we could imagine are at some level animating this because it's you know millions of people it's considerable. So what I would imagine is going on is you know people are rethinking their careers. It's been a difficult year, but then there's also COVID. But then some of these other issues, even if they're not the de- uh, deciding consideration in in uh, sort of labor market incentives, they still exist such as childcare, such as uh, unemployment insurance. So on the margin, that, that may have some effect. But there's just something going on here that is, is I, I've never seen it before. Yeah. Um, I mean, since this post-severe pandemic, uh, it's, it's, it's a unique animal. Yeah. I, I Doug said a couple of times, this has been sort of this unique recession and, you know, things that well, you mentioned, the savings rates were up for households. And, and he's mentioned that a couple of times as well. So I read the article, this article in the Wall Street Journal, I think on Monday, where they basically talked about how businesses are posting these record job openings. Um, the unemployment benefits, I believe, you know, expired after the uh, Labor Day deadline. So to, to that extent, in this report, will we see more people return to work? And now that these benefits have expired, do you think we're finally going to start seeing some of that data? You know, so since we've been recovering from the the recession induced by the, the pandemic, and then just the pandemic, frankly, the biggest driver from the beginning has been the course of the virus. It has animated a lot of the business closures and behaviors around around commerce and labor markets, but fundamentally, the, just the virus and people's responses to the virus has been driving driving this. And 
there are concerns about about Delta. It, it seems like some of the caseloads have, have been coming down a little bit. It's still present, um, but nevertheless, we've been seeing a little little bit of an increase and an improvement in uh, in the jobs numbers. And you know, as I said, some of the reasons, some of the policy reasons for people staying on the sidelines have receded, but the virus is still a thing. Like uh, <laughs> you know, it's still out there, and so I, I don't expect to see that this is going to be the report that gets us back to normal by any stretch. But rather, I do expect to see continued improvement in the labor market. And I expect Friday's job report to reflect that. So I yeah. expect a, a strong, a strong report. Yeah, because we're still kind of we're still pretty far away away from that pre-pandemic job participation, uh, labor force participation rate. Right? Yeah, right. we're, we're well below both the labor force participation rate. And then we we certainly have not replaced um, the 22 million jobs that we lost since then. We're about 80 percent back, I think, at this point. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to pivot us back to your favorite conversation. That's Congress. Um, how could this jobs report impact the debate on the reconciliation bill? I don't expect uh, this jobs report to have the same effect on on the reconciliation bill that we would have seen, say, last time around. So when Congress was considering the American Rescue Plan, recall that that was the Biden administration's sort of first big thing in office. And that was very much a COVID bill. That was also delivering on the incoming president's sort of uh, COVID campaign promises. So that was the $1,400 checks to get people up to the $2,000 amount that um, figured so prominently, particularly in the Georgia election. And, you know, that was couched very much as COVID uh, relief and then sort of stimulus. That's not what's going on right now. In fact, there's been um, kind of a willful um, and deliberate desire to sort of step back from sort of stimulus talk because we've seen a lot of that stimulus essentially evaporated up in, in, in inflation. So that's, that is not the, the word of the day. <laughs> um, and um, instead, the, the discussion is now on, quote, investments, which is uh, how uh, people who, who like a given program describe just spending. But uh, I don't expect you to, you to see any, uh, any material effect from Friday's report on the outlook for the, the reconciliation bill. But one more point on that is the reconciliation bill is such a big, complicated, complex, not that there's enough going on without uh, there's there's sort of enough parameters and considerations that are defining that piece of legislation in the Friday jobs report. Fair enough. On the reconciliation yeah. bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I mean, at this point, they're tied together. Right. I mean, yeah, they're not going to vote on it in the House without one or without the other. Where are we in this debate? Um, we essentially have what it looks like to me, three sides, moderate senators, Manchin and Senator Simina, and then progressives on the other. And then in another corner, we have the Republicans. Is there some sort of compromise in which each side could claim a win here? What might that look like? Certainly, Senator Manchin very clearly articulated what his parameters were to uh, Majority Leader Schumer back in the summer. And so... So long as that those parameters are binding uh, or even incrementally binding, so there's talk that uh, maybe he can come up from one and a half trillion, that means that a final deal will be way less than what progressives want, but are presumably acceptable to moderates. My sense is progressives will recognize that it's more than they otherwise would get. There's a lot of policies in there that won't happen if 
say Republicans take the House or the Senate flips. So it's the best deal in town, notwithstanding a lot of the strong, strong feelings on the matter and some tough talk. My expectation is that they won't let the perfect be the enemy, enemy of the good here and they'll take the deal. Well, Gordon, before I let you go, I do want to ask, how have you been spending your free time? I just got passed a note right before we got on here that you've been spending your time doing some new cooking things. So why don't you tell us about that? That's right. When in doubt, um, yeah, I, I uh, like to spend my free time in, in the kitchen. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, I started making andouille sausage. In fact, just, made, just started making sausage in general. But uh, in particular, really like making smoked andouille, made, made jambalaya with it my family so that was uh well received i think they're still eating the leftovers so so that worked out but yeah uh here in dc wanted to learn how the sausage is made and uh, bought a book on it <laughs> I was if we were going to fit that metaphor in here that you know as we talked about congress and everything they have to do with that you know the sauce how the sausage is getting made if that was going to find its way in here and if we got it <laughs> gordon thanks for joining us and watching all these different policy debates. I'm sure you're going to have a busy couple of weeks ahead. Congress will keep, will, uh, keep it interesting for us. As they always do. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.